All right, we are back for another great episode, and this is the season premiere of How to Acquire Podcasts, and joining me on today's episode is a returning guest, the founder and CEO of the Dream Exchange. Joe, welcome to How to Acquire Podcasts. How are you doing? I'm doing great, and I'm thrilled to be back on with you. It's, uh, I'm thrilled to give you the update of where we are and keep getting the audience to be more aware and listen uh so really happy to be here definitely and i know on today's episode a lot of people are going to be tuning in because they want to learn about the the flow of of, uh, how money flows how a stock exchange works we're going to get into all these really great concepts but just like you said let's get a little bit of an update where is the dream exchange today what have you been working on since last time we spoke uh which has been about six to eight months yeah so um the the big news and I maybe and it will get into this as we talk, but uh, we have in uh, mid November we signed a partnership agreement with um, an existing stock exchange called the Members Exchange. Okay. Um, we took about a year working with them, evaluating, uh, mutually evaluating one another to see what, what the workability of the technology that we have uh, and that we are kind of on the cutting our fingers on the bleeding edge with and how we could share that with them and how they could take the technology they've uh, developed and what they're doing and share it with us. So they would host certain things that we have. We're helping to enhance some of the things they have. And um, we came to an agreement in November. Uh, the significance of that is, is, very high and this maybe leads into what you and i were talking about before we got on here which is you know what is a stock exchange and how does it work so you know there are currently only seven stock exchanges in america the new york stock exchange which is obviously the most famous one it actually is that's actually a family of exchanges they have uh several different uh sub brands Mm-hmm. There's the New York Stock Exchange, New York, which everyone's familiar with, which is where, you know, all the companies go public and they ring a bell and they have a celebration. Um, that's one in the family. And then they have another one called Nice Archipelago or Nice Arca. That's a, that archipelago is actually the company that I helped to form in the mid 1990s. I remember you told me that before. Right. So I was the lawyer for the founders and. Mm-hmm. It was really among the first few companies to ever use the internet to buy and sell securities. And it grew to such a, it was the state of the art company. Um, And by 2005, the writing was really on the wall. I think the New York Stock Exchange recognized that if they didn't either acquire or partner with Archipelago, the electronic stock exchange world that had been born, they would have really been left in the dust. Um, so in 2005, there was a merger of Archipelago and the New York stock exchange that is now called nice Arca. Wow. And that's where, yeah. So that's where all the electronic or a large portion of electronic trading, uh, in the New York stock exchange family of exchanges takes place. Um, so it, but there's the New York stock exchange family of exchanges. Uh, there's the NASDAQ stock exchange. There's a, stock exchange in Chicago called the Chicago Board of Options Exchange. Those are the three biggest. 
So uh, those three stock exchanges carry 90% of all volume on stock exchanges in the country. Okay. And what does volume mean? So, and this is the mechanics of stock exchanges. So as a stock exchange is a very unique type of organization. It doesn't uh, really, I guess not that it doesn't care, but if the market goes up or if the market goes down, or if people are buying at higher prices or lower prices or investing their money, someone has to oversee the game of how the buying and the selling is conducted. That's really what a stock exchange is in its core purpose. It's the, it's the governing rules by which the buying and selling of all stock occurs in the public markets in the United States. So when I say 90% of all that traffic, um, every year there are about 3 trillion shares of stock bought and sold. They match. Um, I think last year, maybe the year before numbers, I got to get next year, last year's numbers, but those 3 trillion shares represent $142 trillion in economic value. So it's not just a share, but it's a share worth a hundred bucks. Right. So right. when the, it's called the notional value. So the notional value of stock exchange trading is, is, you know, $150 trillion or so. Um, and, and stock exchanges perform a very important function, which is they make sure that there's a fair, transparent, uh, equitable marketplace so that the participants buying and selling are following rules that permit people to freely trade while also preventing uh, the market from doing bad things and taking advantage of people. That's the purpose behind the stock exchanges trade matching. So what we've done in our, our agreement to work with the members exchange, which is the newest exchange uh, in America. And, you know, in the two years that they've been in existence, they went from zero to 6% market share. Wow. Right. So that's a very big number. Mm -hmm. Um, the, the New York Stock Exchange has about 30% market share. The NASDAQ has about 50% market share. And the Chicago board has about uh, 10 or 12. Repeat that again. NASDAQ has 50 or 15? Five, zero. 50. Wow. Right. I didn't know that. Right. So NASDAQ is actually, in this environment, a, a larger exchange than New York Stock Exchange. Interesting. Right. So... The members exchange is very unique because um, the owners of the stock exchange are 18 uh, of the users of stock exchanges. So, uh, you know, and it's a, it, those are all household names, JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, BlackRock, uh, Wells Fargo Securities, Morgan Stanley. They're the owners of the members exchange and the members exchange in its unique brand has created a more simple and a more efficient, I guess, methodology electronically. And they made it very simple for those organizations 
to do business buying and selling stocks. So that's a very uh, kind of earth changing event. And they're very new, but obviously they're growing rapidly. Uh, the other thing they did is they're competing on price. So obviously when these organizations are functioning trading stocks, they have to pay a fee to the exchange. So they're doing it a little cheaper and more efficiently. So we liked what they did. I love their team. Their team and our team are really getting along swimmingly well. I think we're doing things in the world of, of you know, stock exchanges that really is unparalleled anywhere uh, in the marketplace. So we're going to become bigger and the next big thing, I guess, in stock exchanges in the future. Um, I don't say that lightly. I was at the birth of Archipelago. <laughs> so we're, we're kind of, maybe we're 10 years away from where, you know, founding of Archipelago was um, in our own world, but it's an extremely exciting development. It took a long time to work out some of the mechanics and we're still working it out because uh, once that, once we've completed all of the component parts of the electronics, then we can actually open our exchange. So we're not open yet. Um, but we expect that there's some months left to, to work, but we expect it to happen this year. Okay. Where we'll actually open the doors of the dream exchange as a stock exchange. And what that's called is the national market system stock exchanges. Okay. So another point of interest. So I don't know even know how many people really understand this exists. There's something called the national market system. All stock exchanges are required to participate in that. Okay. So there isn't uh, a differentiation between um, you can't you can't buy and sell stocks in a silo in one city and not open that up to the entire country by right. law. Right. So, okay. So to become a national market system participant is a very high barrier, um, which is why there are only seven <laughs> uh, will be the eighth. Um, but the importance of what that means and kind of addressing the audience of, you know, what we're talking about today is understanding how money flows through the American investing marketplace so there's really only two ways. One way is the, the stock exchange systems where it's called the public markets, meaning anyone can participate. You can go open a stock brokerage account at E-Trade or Ameriprise or Charles Schwab, choose what you want to invest in and invest in it. Uh, or you can go and open an account at another stock brokerage and have a stock broker do it for you. Right. All of that investing that's occurring is in the marketplace called the public markets. And the funds that go into that marketplace, they're really coming in large volume from stock brokerage accounts, like I just mentioned, where individuals own stocks or a 401k plan. So there's someone managing someone's money and they, they make a determination. You put your money in your 401k, but you're not actually picking the individual stocks, right? The 401k plan manager decides what to invest in. And the 401k will go up or down 
based upon how good your manager is. Um, in addition, there are pension funds. So what happens to the pensioners money once they've worked and, you know, uh, a, a, the Chicago transit union that my father was in that for many years, he's got, he had a pension. What happens to that money once it's taken out of your paycheck? Well, it goes into another fund manager. The fund managers decide what to do with it. Now, some of them are heavily regulated. So pension funds are regulated. They can't just buy a whole bunch of risky stocks. They have to buy treasury bonds. They have to invest the money in safe investments to make sure the pensioners get their pension checks. Uh, on the other hand, there's a portion of that that does go right to the stock market. So the money's flowing from us. The people of America, in some version, are either individually or in a pool of people, pension fund, 401k fund, investment, you know, mutual fund, pooling your money into a fund, and that money is eventually arriving in the public stock exchange marketplace. Now, when I say public, the meaning of that is very significant because the only investments eligible to be public are companies that have filed a registration statement with the Securities Exchange Commission agreeing to transparently disclose all of the information about their company to the world, to the investing public. They have to do that four times per year. And it's onerous. It's reporting obligations are difficult. And there's severe penalties for not telling the truth. But the flip side is by doing that, anyone can invest in your company. You don't have to go talk to an investor and convince them that you're a good company. It's just IBM is there every day if you want to buy it. Right. So the public markets are the one way that investment money flows through our economy, like I just described. The other way is what is referred to as private capital markets. Now that too has individual investors. Um, so, you know, some small startup company that has a plan and a dream, they, they can go to their friends and family and their friends and family can invest in their company, but it's very limited. They in fact can't open it to just anyone. They actually have to be friends and family or as the company grows and they do a more formal process, they actually have to write a legal document that explains why they're exempt from filing a registration statement with the Securities Exchange Commission. So private markets are exempt. Well, for the privilege of not having to file all that paperwork with the Securities Exchange Commission, that's a, that's a privilege. The, the restriction is you may only offer the investment to what's called an accredited investor. So an accredited investor in today's market is an individual who earns $200,000 a year or more, a married couple earning $300,000 a year or more, uh, or someone who has a net worth of $1 million, not including their home, not including what they call illiquid assets. So the bar to make an investment in this is quite high. So private investments 
are not really open to a large number of the American population. The other part of private investment is venture capital funds, private equity funds, hedge funds. These are very sophisticated financial people and they form a fund in the file paperwork to be exempt. This is not a public fund. And they collect money from very wealthy institutions and individuals. And then they take that money as a venture capital fund and they choose what companies to invest in. And all those companies are also private. They're not generally public companies for the most part. So money is flowing into the private markets in a, in a similar way, but with less of a, an audience, less of an access opportunity for the general American investing public. And those are the two ways. There's no other way. It's either it, you're either in the public markets or you're in the private markets. Um, and so one of the things that we're helping to create is first, our first step is to become a fully functional national market system stock exchange where we will carry traffic in the public markets of the buying and selling of stocks. Once we have that primary license to be a, what's called an NMS exchange, national market system, we then have the opportunity to formulate rules at our stock exchange to accept companies to go from private to public. They're called listing rules. So the company that files its registration with the Securities Exchange Commission says, we want to sell our shares to anyone. We're not private anymore. We're public. Well, the registration statement at the government is only one step. You then have to apply to a stock exchange to be eligible to be listed on the stock exchange. It's called a public listing. So even if you file all your paperwork with the government, there's no guarantee that the New York Stock Exchange or the NASDAQ Stock Exchange will accept you to become part of the listing offerings of their exchange as a company. So there's an importance here. And the importance is if you aren't able to attract the right intermediaries, the right professionals, those people who are familiar with how to go public, and you want to do that, that opportunity, the, the doors of access are generally closed. So what we're doing is first, after we are the national system exchange, we're going to, in the future, this is probably ne next year, file additional rules that will allow us to accept companies to list their company's stock on our exchange. When they're listed on a stock exchange, all of the other exchanges are then permitted to buy and sell the stock as well. So for example, if your company was fortunate enough to meet the minimum standards to be a listing on the NASDAQ stock exchange, you can buy and sell the stocks through the New York Stock Exchange, through the Members Exchange, through any of the other exchanges. However, the company that's focused on helping that company go from private to public, 
is the NASDAQ stock exchange. So the importance of what we're doing is we're addressing a market need that currently has really just never been addressed. It's, it's really addressing underserved communities. And it's not just that there's a lot of entrepreneurs who would really like access to public exchanges. Um, the black community in its in the 230 year history of stock exchanges in the United States, there have only been two black owned companies ever listed on the New York Stock Exchange. Now, to give you an order of magnitude, today there are over 6,300 publicly listed stocks. There have been tens of thousands of companies listed over the, the hundreds of years, tens of right. thousands. Right. So it isn't 2%, it's two companies. Uh, I think we calculated at 0.002%. <laughs> okay. So it's a very, very underserved marketplace. And that's because the minimum to be on that exchange is you have to have 50 million or above something like that. Okay. So there's, there's two things. One is correct for, to be a national exchange listing. There are many requirements. You have to have a certain amount of revenue, 75 million a year in revenue. You have to have uh, a track record of high profitability, 10 million a year in profitability. Uh, you have to have shown that, there's a historical basis for you to enter the large public capital markets, which won't be so significantly different for the dream exchange. Our, we're, we're in the development stage of what the standards will be. They will be different. They, I think they will be easier to comply with. Um, in fact, I'm certain they will be, but it's still a fairly large company. What we're also developing and this is part of a legislative effort, is a brand new law for a brand new type of stock exchange that we will be a pioneer in. They're called venture exchanges. Now, venture exchanges, it's a very different animal, very different, in that um, the way the national market system works it has certain rules that really just almost make it impossible for a small company to list. Well, at one time, when I say the overwhelming majority, I'm, you know, we would have seven or 800 companies list as public companies in one year. Um, out of the seven or 800 companies, 80 to 90% of them were only raising $50 million or under normalized in today's dollars. So one of the factors that goes into the consideration for that is how does a stock exchange and how do the intermediaries make money today? Do they make money by helping the company form its capital and reach the public markets or do they make money on the frequency and volume that that company shares will be bought and sold? 
Well, today it's all volume based. So a $1 billion public company that goes public for the first time will have an enormous amount of volume buying and selling in its first week. A $50 million company, it may take months or a year or years before the volume is equal to the $1 billion company. So the interest in doing it is very low. So what we've had to do in the legislation is address market structure so that a new type of stock exchange can exist where intermediaries can make a living helping the smaller company and the stock exchange can be solvent or profitable getting those companies into the public market. Now that's one, that's the one side, which is access to the flows of money in the public market. That's what we're doing. The other side of it is protecting the investors because it just can't be that somebody created a company, it's a piece of paper in their drawer and they sold a lot of stock and investors get ripped off. So what, we're, what we've done is we created a customized process which does two things. One, it's a toolbox of the mechanics to train the company in its evolution to become part of the public market system. Things they haven't even thought of, regulatory reporting, uh, audited financial statements, things that most mature companies take for granted, the emerging company is just learning about. Now, that's not to say that the executives there don't have a complete, you know, they're not, not that they're, we're not well-versed, but what we're doing is helping them put the tools in the toolbox not just informing, but finding resources. What accounting firms, what law firms, what investment bankers, what underwriters, all those intermediaries that are needed to be assembled to help them reach the public markets, we're helping to organize so that we can recreate that vibrant market, which today, I was saying we have, we'd have 700, 900 companies go public. Well, today, we're lucky if we have 200, 250 in a year. We're lucky to have 10 that are 50 million and under. So the change in the market is very, only the very largest companies with the very high values reach getting onto the flows of public finance. There's $142 trillion being bought and sold. It's only being bought and sold amongst the largest organizations. It's not that we're trying to, make another $142 trillion marketplace. In fact, the, the small companies would choke on that much money. It's a very small marketplace, but we're making it trustworthy again so that the investor can be protected while simultaneously becoming part of the public flow of money throughout the American economic system. Because if you can reach there, and I think we were talking about this earlier as well. When a company is able to become public, after that event happens, 92% of all the jobs that are ever created in the company occur afterwards. Right. So if you have a 100-person vibrant emerging company and it can reach the public markets, it becomes a 1,000-person company. And here's the real difference. 
This is why it's been very compelling to congressional leadership. These are not just your average minimum wage job. The departments and areas of a public company that once it's expanding, create really meaningful job opportunities. Investor relations, human relations, uh, legal departments, uh, you know, human resources, treasury, finance, marketing, uh, operations, quality control, public relations. There's career path, um, meaningful, expanding jobs that you can have a career. And maybe you move from one company to the next, but there's more opportunity among more companies. And we're training, we've done a good job of this. I think many, many young people today are able to go to high school and go to college and look for opportunity. But that's only part of the equation. You can't just provide someone with a diploma and then say, great, you're on your own. We actually have to put the economic engine in place to utilize the valuable human resources that our country is cultivating. There's a lot of brilliant people who are graduating from universities and seeing a very limited opportunity throughout the landscape of job opportunities. So once there are more public companies, there's more meaningful career path jobs available in a community. And our focus, our long-term focus is assuring that the, the law that we've been working on, it's called the Main Street Growth Act. I think that the law, it's not a matter of whether it will pass any longer, it's a matter of when. Um, there's a consensus amongst both political parties that that law has uh, you know, reached its ripening. In fact, as far back as 2018, and, and we've had four years of kind of, I, there's an exhaustion factor that I deal with with people because we had COVID and we had uh, presidential elections and turmoil, and we seem to be emerging from that at this point. So for four years, there's just been a political languish on a very small, it's, a, it's only an 11 page law. It's not like a thousand page appropriations law. So it just hasn't been able to be moved to the forefront of creating in our Congress. Um, I think that ship has sailed. I think it's gonna be a hot topic during the next two years. And the fact is that it's coming as a pedigreed vetted law because in 2018 and this is i think it's part of an accomplishment that i'm proud of i was part of the group of people that really worked heavily on it that year and the law passed the house financial services committee bipartisan so there are 56 members of that committee uh republicans and democrats uh but it passed unanimously and like I said, this four years of turmoil, you know, it's hard to get a Republican and a Democrat to agree that water is wet. <laughs> um, uh, but ironically, on this very topic, they've come together very nicely. And in fact, it passed the House of Representatives that same year unanimously. So it wasn't just 56 to zero, it was 435 to zero. Wow. Um, right. So... This is a, it, it's a new thing whose time has come. 
and you know we society put a pause on a number of things uh, over the years that were not really uh, wholly beneficial because we were dealing with other crises. So this is a brand new thing. It's time has come. We are absolutely excited to see this come to fruition because I think the importance of it is the sequence of national market exchange, national market public listings, and then venture exchange and venture exchange listings is really the meat and potatoes of how we get into the community, into the small company, give them the tools they need, get them the capital and that they need in to form their company and expand. So that's the sequence of our business plan for the coming years. And it, the importance of that is it allows access for the small business onto the flow lines of capital formation and investment finance in America in a way that's never really been done before. And we are the Uh, doing it, and it, and ironically, a, a diverse team of people. So you know, we we are a majority uh, black-owned company. So that's a first. We'll be the first majority-owned uh, black-owned stock exchange in the history of the country. Um, that's part A, but you know, part B is fifty percent of our employees are black. <laughs> so we have we're fifty percent minority participation. Um, and we've only begun hiring. So I expect that that mix will either stay consistent or grow um, because there's just extraordinarily brilliant people who understand this, are getting trained in it internally here. And we're, we are, we're doing the state of the art thing. Um, and we're doing, I think what we'll be doing is much, uh, I think better than the rest of the marketplace. And certainly whether we're equal or better, maybe opinions may differ. What we will be is unique because we're the only organization in the country doing what I'm doing right now, getting the word out and maybe going back to the, to the real purposes of what I'm, we're trying to accomplish. Um, there are a lot of people who, you know, we have, Right now we have a whole pile of, uh, of investors. Um, there's 92 black investors, credit investors in our company, uh, wonderful people. And many of them have, have made their investment and almost some of them in tears. Um, and it, it's the thing I'm probably most proud of, which is that we're taking finance, some a topic that has usually been fraught with a lot of things that are not really true. Greed is good. It's a dog eat dog world. Uh, you know, the more vicious you are, the better you are. That Those are not true things. Actually, I've been representing investors for 30 years. And um, actually, the kindest and the most compassionate, smartest people I've ever met are also the wealthiest. So, uh, but they're also very honest and they are also capable of evaluating things and kind of looking at something that's not really workable and making it work, which it 
in that lies hope. So if you feel like it's just hopeless and you're an entrepreneur and you're struggling through all of that and you're trying to get to the next level and you're trying to develop your company, or if you're a small business investor and you're got tied up in a bunch of investments and you can't figure out how can I make this more profitable? How can I make this expand? And I'm worried you're a small business investor working with their small business investments to better the company. It can, it can become rather hopeless. <laughs> so we are a beacon of hope um, because there aren't stock exchange personnel or leadership doing and saying what we're doing. We're the real deal. We're doing it. We're not just talking about it. And we're addressing communities that just have never been in the conversation before. It's a seat at the table. And that seat at the table has been quite profound for a lot of people because this is a purpose. It's something that's a vocation. It's something that we're doing that we really aren't just um, trite. There's a tenacity and a reality and a pragmatism to what we do that is let's actually provide a solution. Let's do it, not talk about it. Right. And in that becomes a much more profound expression of the long-term nature of what the dream exchange is all about. And I actually mentioned this to you before I got the call, you know, I'm the dream exchange is something that we're all creating for many, many, many years after we're long, long since dead and gone. I want the dream exchange to be a household name 50 years from now. And I'd like it to be a household name two years from now too. <laughs> okay. Um, on the other hand, we're not taking any shortcuts. There's, we're building the foundation of this structure solidly so that it will last and it won't be yet one more potential that dies. And on the tombstone, we write, here lies this dream potential intact. That's not what we're about. And it relates internally to the way investors think, the way entrepreneurs think. They are hoping that their investment is worth more tomorrow. And that's why they invest. They don't invest a dollar to get 80 cents back. An entrepreneur doesn't go about creating a company hoping to fail. He's hoping he succeeds. And their thought process usually has a barrier. There's a saturation point, a limitation, something that says, I've made it this far. How do I get bigger? How do I expand? How do I survive? And we're providing that answer. The next stage of your evolution is reaching the general American public so you can be supported by that American public in making sure that your products continue in existence and expand and innovate. Uh, Apple computer started in a garage, if you believe the folklore. I don't know very many people that aren't dealing with an Apple product 
at, at, uh, or multiple Apple products in their day-to-day -day lives. Well, if Apple Computer had never been able to reach a public market, how would we be doing right now? What would we be using? What would that innovation and creativity and expansion of how we all live our lives uh, been tabled to? Would have been something that and perhaps someone else would have filled the gap. I don't know. But it was the better mousetrap. And this is underneath all of what I've just said. Ultimately, rewarding the people who have the idea for the best mousetrap. If we keep rewarding them, we get the best mousetraps. We get a better society. We get better products. We get better things that help us live better lives. And we, we confront these problems. And this is the philosophy. Sorry to be a bit philosophical about flows of support. Um, human beings have been on the planet for thousands of years. And we don't live in caves anymore. And it's because, you know, the guy who figured out how to use the wheel wasn't driven out of the environment by politics. He came up with a better idea and it helped everybody. And all of a sudden the wheel went to a cart and the cart went to a wagon. And the wagon now exists as an automobile with climate control. It's taken us time, but we've supported all that innovation. Those best ideas continue to evolve and innovate and evolve and innovate. And our society now flows its money through a system where we're not getting sufficient capital and money into the hands of the best ideas all the time. And we're certainly not doing it in the public markets. The private markets are doing a pretty good job, but it's not enough. And it's not enough because as those organizations begin their journey, the menu, the Rolodex, the relationships needs to expand to the entire society because that which we give our money to, we will get more of. It's how things grow. And what we want to do is give our money to the most innovation, to the most creativity, to the things that make us freer, and more self-determined and more independent and reward those who are, are most able to help create that. Um, there was a documentary not long ago that I watched about the fall of the Soviet Union. Okay. My takeaway from the documentary was we did a better job winning the Cold War with rock and roll and Coca-Cola than we ever did with a missile. Right culture we, we just had a better culture a freer culture we had better products we had more choices we had more opportunity and freedom and opportunity are what made the country a wonderful place to be it's still a wonderful place to be and anytime you find the opposite of that anytime you find a degraded place where freedom and opportunity are being suppressed that's not what we're all about. And the primary place that we need to put freedom and opportunity 
is in the opportunity to thrive in your production every day. Because if you're good and you work hard and you play by the rules and you've got bright ideas, you should be rewarded. You're the, you are the dream exchanges looking for creating other people so that their dreams become a reality. That's our dream. Because I know what I don't know. And the fact is, I can't know all those innovative ideas. I just got to help them forward their innovation. I, I know that I use them. I love my computers and my phones and my technology. It helps me live a better life. I also know that I couldn't tell you, I can barely use the computer, let alone build it. <laughs> so people in finance that are, that are like me have to start directing the flows of the economic system in a way that allows for more seeds to be planted and acorns to take root. And eventually then we have a forest of oak trees. That's, that's how we're going about it. And we're going about it by the dream exchange becoming a large area of fertile soil for all those people to have put their seed in the ground and hope that they're one of the oak trees in the future. And, you know, sorry, I didn't let you ask me any questions. I, <laughs> uh, I, uh, Your answer so more. I, I do have one question. Sure. Far, far away. Uh, well, so, so, I mean, my, my, mm -hmm. I guess the, 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 the summary is that that's our philosophy, but, um, more, more importantly, I would say that it's pragmatic. We're not guessing. This is not something where we're hoping it works. Auction stock exchanges have worked for 230 years. So we aren't actually inventing any wheels. We're taking an old wheel, putting a little spit and polish on it, changing a bit of how it turns and using it so that more people get to ride and more people get to become part of a system that makes us a freer, more equal um, uh, society with more opportunity. Um, and in a, listen, I, I, I live this, this is my life. And then my team, I have the most dedicated people, extraordinary people who when my eyes close at night, I dream about the dream exchange. When they open in the morning, I'm the dream exchange. So it doesn't take much for to put a nickel in and, and get an hour's worth of what we're about and what we're doing, because this is all we do every day as a vocation, as a passion for really seeing that, you know, if you knew that what you were doing could help millions of people, um, it's, uh, it's almost hard to sleep at night because I just want to be on it and get it there so that these the the speed with which we deliver becomes increasingly faster and better and and create a superior organization with superior people um, to deliver what we know is the right solution. Joe and I I appreciate everything um, you've been been working on behind the scenes and you're spreading this message out. I've seen you Yahoo Finance. I've seen you on the big stages and also yeah. talking to some of the smaller podcasts and really sharing this out. There's a concept, and I know we have to go soon, but there's a concept 
um, that which may end up being the title of this episode about overseeing the flows of money. Right. How does the Dream Exchange profit off of being an overseer? How does yeah, yeah great. Yeah, how do how do stock exchanges make money? Um, that's a great question. So, um, there's there's a number of ways. So the first way is when a buyer of stock, he doesn't know if someone is going to sell him the stock. He puts in an order. Mm-hmm. So I'd like to buy a hundred shares at a certain price. And there's a seller of the stock who he doesn't know if he's got a buyer. So he says, I like to sell so many shares of stock at a certain price. The stock exchange makes sure that when they put that order into the national market system, it's regulated, it's proper, it's coming through an organization that has made sure that the customer buying and selling is complying with all the rules. A stock exchange will match the buyers and the sellers. Now that happens, as I said earlier, three trillion times per year okay Mm -hmm. so when that is occurring as soon as that matches the stock exchanges send a fee to the seller of the stock to their broker and it's thousands of a penny so every time that happens a stock exchange is earning some very very small amount of money So clearly the volume is important, lots of shares. That's one way. Mm -hmm. Now, the other way that that stock exchanges make money is we also have all the data on what's happening in the stock market. So people who are making investment decisions or deciding what position they should take, buying and selling, whether they should put a limit on certain orders all that data is very valuable to them. So we also share the data and they pay fees for the data to the stock exchange. Okay. So way number two is we sell data. Now the third way, which is only done by the NASDAQ and the New York stock exchange today, it will be done by us is when a new company wants to list its shares on that exchange. The first day that it's listed, the initial public offering or IPO mm-hmm. stock exchange charges a separate fee for that. Okay. And that fee is actually shared by the company, the intermediaries who help the company go to the stock exchange and the, the investors. So there's a, a group that shares those fees. So those are the three charges in the, in the simplest of all forms that stock exchanges charge to, to earn money. It's, it's a highly profitable business um, because today um, it doesn't take the same volume of employees and overhead. When we're fully functional uh, later this year, it's unlikely we'll have more than 60 or 70 employees, um, which makes the barrier to, you know, if you're carrying billions of shares uh, at thousands of a penny, there's a lot of revenue we can generate and it's not like we have to hire a thousand people to do it. So it's a very scalable business today because of financial technology. The technology really has been what is enabling us to even enter the market. Um, The other side of what it costs to operate is 
It's a very, very tightly regulated business. We're directly regulated by the Securities Exchange Commission. So we're responsible to the federal government for reporting information, compliance with the laws, assuring that our rules are followed, assuring that the stock brokerages are following the rules as well, and gathering and reporting all that information. And that can be quite expensive to do. Um, on the other hand, not so expensive that it's not uh, able to be something that you're not only are you solvent, but you're profitable. I mean, there's never been a stock exchange bankruptcy that I'm ever aware of. Um, so it's, it's a very um, high, high, high barrier to entry. So if you don't know what you're doing, it's not like you, it's not like someone else is going to form a stock exchange tomorrow. It's, it's difficult if you haven't done it before. Uh, there aren't tens of thousands of people who know how to do it. There's, in fact, I'd say only several hundred perhaps. So it's a, the barrier to entry to the market is more about knowing how to create and operate a stock exchange than a barrier which would include, oh my gosh, if we just don't get more people coming to buy coffee, we're going to be out of business as a coffee right. shop. Right. Um, and it's a clearly defined marketplace with clearly defined participants. So when we know our participants, we know how what their needs are, and we're just doing it, as I've talked about for God only knows how long I'm uh, uh, with you. We're doing it for a completely new purpose with a new brand, with a refreshingly hopeful message that will make the use of this tool called the stock exchange, something very useful for everybody. So that's how we do it. Uh, and, and there are other nuances to that, uh, that, that pertain to um, the interactions we have with our customers where there are other little ways to that that they get are charged money but those are the three primary ways that a stock exchange makes money and then is helping the customer direct their flows so if there is no new public listing if there is no company well they can't the customer can't invest in it it's not a, it's not open to them so when we open the market, our customers are then able to direct funds to form the capital in these companies that don't even have this opportunity today. Right. That's one way. The other way is in the market, the, I talked about funds, venture capital funds and private equity funds and pension funds and investment funds that are all sitting there. They're looking for the opportunity to provide some of the flow of money through a stock exchange like ours into the investments that would generally grow and help the economy. So that being even at the table as one of the market participants as a stock exchange allows us to make choices and decisions in the market that are unique to our brand. So that's the way we help to enhance the flows into a into the economy in a way that's has a future. You mentioned earlier about regulation. Are are foreign companies able to get onto the Dream Exchange, or is it only United United States or North America companies? Now there there are foreign owned listings. So, uh, but if if a foreign company wants to become part of a U.S. stock exchange marketplace they have to domesticate themselves 
and become subject to the laws of the United States and our securities laws. Okay. It's not that there aren't, you know, foreign enterprises, but when you foreign meaning to be on the stock exchange, they have to be domesticated in a way that makes them subject to the jurisdiction of the laws of the United States. Okay. Right. Thank you so much for that. I know that's a question that a lot of people had uh, when it comes to any exchange of how does that work? So right. as we uh, head out and you've, you provided us a wealth of information, um, th there's something I want to uh, head out with. You were talking about how when you go public, it creates uh, job opportunities and more, uh, I guess, the flows of cash in the particular business. Just take, just give us a glimpse. How does that exactly happen? Sure, Let's, sure. Go ahead. Yeah. So, you know, when I, there's a couple of different, I mean, I could talk for that to that for an hour, but I'll give you, let me give you the really big, big, big highlights. Okay. So a private company that has raised a lot of money, mm -hmm. well, they can't sell their shares anywhere. Okay. The investors that bought the shares of the company, they, they own it. They're in it. Well, in, if they're a public company, now the public market evaluates the share pricing. The, there's a market, mm -hmm. which means that the buying and selling of shares that goes on every day means there's what's called liquidity. You can turn your investment into cash. Well, once you're a public company, the availability of cash to your investors and the value of your company is something that's literally calculated in milliseconds on a stock exchange. And that level of liquidity is a public market validation of what you're doing by private or by individual investors in the public market, not private investors. Well, think about all the relationships that benefit from public company status starting with banks. So if you're a private company and you want to get a loan, how does the bank know that your investors will continue to cooperate, that if something isn't working or you're violating a term in the bank, that somehow the bank's protected? Well, in a public company, you're subject to all those regulations now. In addition to the fact that the company's rules and regulations and liquidity for its investment mm -hmm. shares is something that's readily available to the bank. Mm -hmm. So banking relationships shift. The ability to provide additional borrowed funds or debt and to even issue debt publicly now is more widely available. Banks are no longer giving money to a private company for which if they want to get their money back, maybe the whole company needs to be sold or the company may have to sell off some of its assets in, a, in an urgency to pay the debts of the corporation. Mm -hmm. Well, public companies, they have the luxury of saying, oh, wow, you know what, we'll, we'll issue bonds. Uh, or, you know what, as the price of our stock has gone up or as we want to issue more shares uh, and raise more money, it's, it's very simple. The public knows who we are. 
the shares are available to the public, and therefore we can turn an investment into cash to pay bank loans. We can turn an investment into cash to pay for research and development. We can turn our investments into cash to pay for expanded marketing and sales and to put facilities in place. So because you're able to turn a share of stock, which is in a private company considered illiquid, can't be converted to cash easily, you can do that easily in the public market. Well, think of all the different things that you can now do turning the shares into cash. So immediately when you go public, you immediately raise a bunch of money because you've immediately sold shares to the investing public. And if in a month or two months or six months or a year, one investor decides, ah, I really want to send my child to college or I want to build an addition on my house or I want to buy a new car, he doesn't have to come back to the company and negotiate. He just sells his shares. And guess what? Instantly, when he sells them, a new investor has replaced him. He may have made a lot of money. Maybe he decided to lose a little bit of money. It doesn't matter. He can sell for any reason or no reason at all. And the company itself is taken out of the equation so long as they're producing good products, selling good products, running their company responsibly. Well, let's face it, the largest companies in the world that do that are the wealthiest companies and the people who have invested and own them are the wealthiest people. So if we can't participate in that system, we are not able to create wealthier companies and wealthier people. That's on one side. That's the investor in the company side. What is the company doing with the money? Expanding, putting facilities there. Well, you can't just build a building. You have to have people. So as soon as you're expanding and putting research and development and laboratories and manufacturing facilities and whatever the case may be, it has to be manned up. And in manning it up, you need human resources people. You need marketing people. You need sales people. You need finance people. You need operations people. You need quality control people. So the numbers of jobs in expansion are geometric. It just grows organically especially if you're able to keep putting it there as a best idea. Even if you're not profitable, Tesla Motors <laughs> did not make a profit until what? Last July. Mm -hmm. But somehow they were the most valuable auto manufacturer in the world. Why? See how that works, huh? He was the first person and their company was the first company to come up with a way to sell retail electronic automobiles. If you have that idea, you have, you have the greatest idea in the last 70 years of automotive technology. Right. It's a wonder he did so well. And how did he do it? Only through the markets because they weren't earning enough money from profits to do it. They expanded using the capital markets. And that's a very viable way to do it. It's the same way a small company can and should do it, especially the small company, because their ideas are often in their infancy and they need the support of the capital markets even more in some instances than the large companies. How does that differ? I know, I know we're, we're headed now. 
How does that differ from what was it called? FTX? Oh, yeah. And that is a whole other hour. So <laughs> FTX, great, great example. A great, no, it's a wonderful example. FTX fashioned themselves as a cryptocurrency exchange, Bitcoin exchange. Mm -hmm. There is no regulator over those exchanges. Ah, I, got, I see, I see. It's a completely unregulated industry. Okay. So when you go and buy a Bitcoin, there's no regulator. You have no idea when you buy a blockchain currency today, mm -hmm. what's going to happen? It can go up, it can go down. There's no market regulation. There's no one overseeing what the company's operations are. That's a totally, in fact, it is the most private of private markets. Mm. People are buying coin currencies. They're not even required to obey the private investing rules. They're just buying a, a they're literally, and like I said, I could go on for an hour. They're literally buying uh, an encrypted blockchain code. That's all they buy. Mm. Buying a piece of computer technology in the hope that other people will buy it as well. And that eventually what that code trading is that other people are buying it and the value of the coin itself continues to expand in its value by other people buying it, constantly buying it, buying it, buying it. Okay. Well, what have they really bought? Nothing. And here's how you know, and this is how you'll know that the evolution of coin currencies works. When you can go to Starbucks and pay for your Starbucks in a coin, you can't do that today. Right. So if someone were to ask you, what is a Bitcoin worth? It's worth some equivalent in dollars. Mm, you're still comparing it to another currency. Fundamentally, it has to have some fungible commodity in, in a currency. It has to have dollars. It has to be fungible, exchangeable, easily flowable. Mm -hmm. And right now, and thank God, maybe I, I, I don't know if I was lucky or smart. We just have had nothing to do with any of those markets. We like regulation. We like transparency. In fact, transparency and regulation equal trustworthiness. So what happened with FTX? It's a, it demonstrated how untrustworthy the market is because there was no transparency and there's no regulation. Our marketplace is heavily regulated and those regulations require transparency or there are severe penalties. So with regulation comes transparency. With transparency, comes trustworthiness, comes the knowledge of what you're investing your money in, in very detailed chapter and verse documents that are filed in the public space that are obligated to be filed every four, well, every three months, four times per year. That's overseen by stock exchanges. That's what we do. So because we are both heavily regulated and transparent, you trust that what you bought is, in fact, in substance, that which you have value for. 
that's why people can easily go to the market today. And if I asked you how much is a uh, share of Apple computer worth, you can go and quote it right on the stock exchange data uh, feed. And you know that if you bought that share of Apple computer somewhere within a limited range between today and tomorrow, if you decided to sell it, you get your money back. If you were to do that with a coin currency, they're trying, but it's unregulated and uncertain. It could drop $10,000 by today and tomorrow, and it could all be something that would, would be unfair to you as an individual investor and no one's watching. So until that market actually gets regulated and has some really defined rules of the game, it's going to experience an increased number of situations, just like what happened with FTX. FTX, in, in at least what I've been able to glean from the news media, was just a total and complete con job. Um, and it was easy to see that that was possible and still is possible in all of the coin offerings that are out there. The difference is some people are trying to operate with integrity and create a new market and more power to them if they can do that. And they're, they'll be at the early adoption stage of something very new and they'll probably become wealthy. Um, on the other hand, until it becomes uh, a game with real barriers and real rules and real uh, opportunities that you know have certainty, then I've just, as an organization and, and, and myself personally, I've just steered away from it because I know too much about exchange marketplaces <laughs> to have decided to, to jump in even with a toe in the pool, let alone jumping in the deep end and trying to swim. That's, that is an extraordinarily huge difference between the regulated securities markets, commodities markets, and currency markets, and coins, uh, electronic coins or blockchain trading technologies. It's completely different sciences and completely different. One has literally nothing to do with the other. Mm. Glad you asked because that has been a freak, more frequent question, which is, how is this different? Uh, it's the difference between, you know, puppy dogs and, uh, you know, lions. Mountain lion, yeah, I was about to say mountain lions. Yeah. So, so the word exchange is the only thing that it has any similarity is the exchange part, but there isn't really anything else. That's it. Gotcha. It's, and literally, it's a word. When right. You, so, in fact, Section 6 of the 1934 Securities Exchange Act says that if you are involved in the business of, of stocks, you cannot use the word exchange in your business name. Mm unless you've received a license to operate a national securities exchange. Gotcha. So you'll notice uh, Morgan Stanley is called Morgan Stanley. Mm -hmm. Wells Fargo Securities is called Wells Fargo Securities. None of them are called the JP Morgan Exchange or the Morgan Stanley Exchange. They're not. They perform some of those functions internally, right. right? but they're not an exchange. So in the law, even it's so, um, it, it's so highly regulated that you can't even use that word 
in our setting where the American investing public is trusting you to make sure that everything is done properly, you're not even allowed to use the word. So when they're naming, uh, you know, something, the Bitcoin exchange, not that I even know that organization exists, but if they were to call it that, it has nothing to do with stocks. It's nothing to do with what we do. It's a completely separate environment that is the Wild West. And listen, the Wild West gave us a frontier, and now we've got California. Right. Power to them. Okay. The pioneers that are going there, uh, let them travel. And there's, but there is an old expression. Uh, the pioneers get the arrows and the settlers get the land. So there's a lot of people who are going to suffer before the game is really settled out as to how it will, in fact, function globally. And I think there's significantly more controversy in the immediate future, uh, in fact, than there has been in the, in the past, which um, as we go forward, those type of exchanges will be in the development stages and I think there are responsible people. I think there are people who are making up good rules and want to use financial technology for blockchain trading of things mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, that, that can be very useful. I'm not against it. Um, it's just in the market we're developing, most of the people that we are dealing with make things. They manufacture something. Actual or, products. Yeah. So... How do those people get money? Well, they do it the old fashioned way through capital markets and investors looking at, I want to support creating more of your widget factory. I want to create more of supporting your retail coffee chain. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So when what with those investments, there's an actual substantive physical universe product that the, com the company is using the money to expand. So, and it's every industry, it's energy exploration, biopharmaceuticals, medical devices, mm -hmm. uh, small manufacturing, um, you know, there, we have every industry and we, we're, I'm chomping at the bit because we're, we're almost a year away from really making invitations to those companies. That's the exciting. First, yeah. It, but it's very close. Very yeah. close. You, you know, you said something and please correct me if I'm wrong. You made an analogy about basically a gold rush, right? And yep. it started making me think about this might be a, be a good thing with the FTX thing because it may show gold versus fool's gold. Yes. I was studying gold last year, just something, you know me, I just be studying stuff. And the, the beautiful thing about gold is if you put it through the fire, uh, it will take away all the... Uh, extremities right and make it more and more pure and you get you get the pure gold but when you put fool's gold or anything else through the fire it's just going to burn away the and whole thing so there's something to that i'm not sure if you're catching my analogy yeah, here. your analogy is perfect um in fact you're picking up what i'm laying down it's that's exactly right okay um the the, the fact is that um substantively even more than you even know um there's a great book if anyone wants to read it it's called the history of money and banking in the united states i, I forget the author he actually explains the evolution of money 
and how one form of money can be displaced into a new form. So at one time, gold was the physical metal that superseded all other metals. It was displaced by silver and on and on and on and on and on. Mm -hmm. Right now, financial technology is displacing money, paper money, cards, bank accounts, Zell transfers from one cell phone to the next, right? We don't use paper money anymore. So there's systems in place. In fact, the stock exchange systems have been not using paper for 20 years. You create a stock brokerage account, not with a suitcase full of cash, but with money you sent from a one bank account to another using financial technology. It's just figures on a screen. Now, when you buy a stock, it's the same thing. They change your cash money in your account into ownership of shares of stock. You don't wait around for the company to mail you a piece of paper that says you own a hundred shares of IBM any longer. That's the way it used to be. You don't have a share certificate anymore. How long did that so, used to take to get to you? A couple of weeks? Yeah, there was a, there was a number of days post-trade, post-purchase mm. that they were required to go through what was called a transfer agent to make sure on the books and records, they signed a piece of paper and they put a corporate seal on it and they put it in an envelope, wow. they shipped it out to the shareholder. Well, today stock is changing hands in millionths of a second all day. Right. We've perfected the displacement of cash in the securities markets. It's, it's a perfect system. It's an amazingly efficient system. Use of the technologies that are blockchain may be part of the future of securities. They may be. On the other hand, this is a bit of the fool's gold entering in looking a lot like the gold of a stock exchange. But in fact, when you put it through the heat, you'll find that it's a bunch of chemicals that burned up in the air. Mm -hmm. Now, some fool's gold has some gold. So some of the coin currencies and some of what's being done in that marketplace actually has value. Um, the question is who's going to come up with the op optimal pathway to the gold mine. Right. That's coming. It's just a different marketplace than ours. And in fact, it's very exciting because I think they're on to something. Okay. Um, and as someone who's been studying stock exchange rules and regulations for the better part of his career, um, I think now that this tremendously huge, tragic event has occurred, people who perhaps like me that understand what good rules can do will begin to weigh in and we're going to get a lot of really smart people in a room to create some extremely good rules so that the use of this blockchain technology and how we evolve to another way of using money can actually become a reality and it's actual gold instead of fool's gold.
but a great analogy. I, I, I will pay you a dollar every time I use that because I will. <laughs> I appreciate that. You mentioned yeah. the book, A History of Money and Banking, United States. The author's name is Murray Rothbard. For Murray, Mur yes, that's correct. Yeah, it's it's not for the faint of heart. Um, it's it's a very uh, technical book, but I, I highly recommend it for anyone who really does want to understand what's actually occurring. It has a historical backdrop to it. Uh, it talks about the early days uh, of the revolution and how um, the paper dollars in the United States were formed and how our country got into debt after the Revolutionary War and what we had to do to solve it and Alexander Hamilton. And it's a wonderful book. Um, but there's a, there's a principle in it that's actually a widely known economic principle, not to get too technical, but it's called Gresham's Law. I won't say anything more about it. Study Gresham's Law inside the history of money and banking in the United States, and you can really be truly informed on the parallels to what's happening today, to what happened from the time when gold as a species form of money was displaced by silver and so on. Um, it's, a, it's a fascinating, if this is what you do with your time like I do, <laughs> it's a fascinating read. Um, and it'll really, it helps to inform today. It's, it's valuable for what's occurring in the markets today. Joe, I want to say this before we head out. You've taught me a lot. I think we've now talked at least four times, if not five times. Yeah. You have taught me a lot about, not just about exchanges, but really about uh, forward thinking and backwards thinking, not in a bad way, but just yeah. looking back and learning from our history, learning from our past. What does that mean moving forward about economies? Uh, you have been, uh, in some ways, like a mentor to me the last uh, four years. <laughs> I'm we, flattered we, to hear that. <laughs> yes. And so I appreciate uh, you taking the time every single time uh, to talk with us. I know uh, hopefully for, before the end of the year, we head over to the other podcast that I host and we catch up over there as well. I like to talk to you at least two times a year. Well, uh, just I, I'm on your time. calendar. You were there in the beginning and I'll, I'll never not uh, take the appointment and get on and give you all the time you need to get, get the word out to your audience. I'm excited for uh, the official launch uh, of the opening up of the exchange. I know it's going to change a lot of lives, impact a lot of lives. And you say, uh, you know, household name in, in 20 years, I see this exchange lasting many, many centuries. This yeah. is something that's going to shift the landscape of, of the future of finance. So thank you so much for the work you're doing today. Well, I love you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity to you're helping us and hopefully we're helping you too. And we Definitely. give that to your listeners and um, yeah, we'll, we, we, as we get some more milestones coming up, maybe hopefully sooner rather than later, I'll, I'll come back on and we'll, we'll do another hour. Definitely. Joe, thank you so much for being on how to acquire podcast, the season premiere season four. Thank you yeah, so yeah. much for kicking Number us one. off uh, this season. <laughs> awesome. Thank you.